Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. I want to thank my sponsors, Top Spinini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins & Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So here's an episode for your listening enjoyment. I'm going to predict, I know what your answer is going to be, but you'll say it. But I got a letter from this guy, Raul Badel, and he's looking for Alex Carrasquel, maybe Chico's uncle, I think. So he's collecting cards of famous Venezuelans. And so he's having trouble finding this last card. And he wants to know a recommendation for me of where he should go. And I just have one name at the name. You're going to have the same name. He's got the take first a right. Just take he's a right. the first table at the National. You walk up and say, that's what I'm looking for. And the crazy thing is, John Ramirez might say, what color variation of that card do you want? John Ramirez, John Ramirez is still a collector. He will still look for certain things of the national each year. And he's not bringing as much as he used to. But John did actual buying trips to Venezuela. Through Chico. I think he, I think Chico he was his guy. Yeah. Chico was his connection, I think. Wow. I it was Alex, but I thought it was Chico. Because he Chico and Pat Quinn, and I don't know who else went to Venezuela and they would buy all this stuff. Yeah. Regular. And it's. You had to have a guide. You couldn't go in there as an American and come out with cards. You had to have somebody walking you through. Anyway, yeah. cool. That's our best advice. That's, a cool, that's John, a cool thing to PC and get players from a certain country. Thanks to John, we were the first price guide to put in checklists for all the Venezuelan cards. He gave them to me at some show, and I got them into the database, and we had them priced for the next almanac. It was like the last thing I did for one of the year's almanacs. And I'm very happy that John was nice enough to do that. But I was very happy to get Venezuelan cards, some real recognition, finally. Not just like the hidden secret of the hobby. Those were the first Topps Retirado cards. I mean, they were ahead of their time in terms of showing long-retired superstars in their sets. Topps didn't do that for a long time. Play ball had done that, and the 48-49 Leaf had some old retired guys. But those Venezuelan cards, they're really interesting sets. So when you got the checklist there, it's a fascinating checklist. What was more fascinating, and I think I got this from a different guy, the first series of 67, which is not the series everybody knows, but there's like a series of people who are playing the Venezuelan League in 67. And well, the Venezuelans, the Venezuelans, yeah. yeah. The Venezuelans. Not Americans, yeah, yeah. And there actually are a couple people who have their very first cards in that set. One's a Hall of Famer, and one could very well be a Hall of Famer. Bobby Cox and Dave Concepcion. Why would Concepcion get in, even though he was playing in the league at the age of 19? Why would he get in the Hall of Fame? He was a hell of a good player. No, there's a limit for how many big red machine guys can There's go no play. limit. There's yeah. no official. There may be an unofficial limit. All you unofficial have to do is limit. Unofficial limit. You cannot put the whole team in. I'll tell you who's not going to be on the... Teamguard Geronimo. <laughs> yes, Geronimo and Foster. Foster at his best. Foster at his best. He just, was, would he have just been wasn't, If he had been able to <laughs> start playing regularly about three seasons earlier, he'd be in the Hall of Fame too. But it's Geronimo and Foster. Okay. Oh, Griffey's not making the Hall of Fame either. It's Griffey the Elder. And Senior? Yeah, he can go... He can go along with his son. Yeah. Hey, uh, son, son is rightly so in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> uh, big time, yeah. Okay, let's finish up with this one here. Actually, I have two more, I guess. Okay. 
One is I got a question from Golden Slumber said back in the days before the internet, what sources of information were used to determine card pricing? And I think we've already discussed that. Let me go first and just say that they weren't sources that were just sitting there. It was more compiling and gathering rather than printing something out. You had to go find it. It was like what they're going to do when they do tennis cards. They had to sign up the players individually instead of having one blanket licensing agreement. Now you can get a licensing agreement with eBay or the auction houses to scrape their data. But in the old days, we wanted all the data we could get, but we had to work hard to get it. I will say the hobby publications at the time, they were publicly available to everybody. And you had to assume that was available. You had long ads with long listings and things like that. But when you went to a card show, I don't remember too many card shows where somebody would have their inventory printed out. The no. printed out inventory was Kit Young or Larry Fritch or somebody that was a major mail-order dealer. Other than that, it was catch as catch can. I'm going to give you one of my little secrets. I would find out if I didn't know. Like in New York, I knew who the market makers were. But if I went to a new area and I knew somebody there, and I would say, tell me who the market makers are. Did they even understand that term? Yeah, they understood. They understood where I was coming from, especially if they knew me. Or I would say, who should I, I might say it this way, who should I talk to? I didn't say market makers, so you're correct. Okay. But I really, but I knew them as market makers. I would say, who should I talk to? Especially if I knew a couple of the vendors there that I knew were honest and would tell me, you go talk to this guy and you go talk to that guy. I could then form a good review or a good information from the show based on who I was told was going to tell me the truth and who was where. And with those people, I'd be very blunt and tell them what I was doing because I wanted to foster, especially in the days of regional correspondence, I also wanted to get them involved. So So I needed to get buy-in. Hey, we also have a regional correspondent program. We might use you a couple times a year and pay you a few hundred dollars. Oh, extra money for just doing that? Oh, I'm all in on that. You're interpreting that question when I first read it, what sources of information were used, you're interpreting that as what personal sources, what people did you go to? And I was interpreting it more in the modern sense of what institutional sources or what printed sources could you go to? The only, we had the hobby magazines, we had the Sports Collectors Digest, we had the Tough Stuffs, we had hobby publications of printed sources. We also had Sportsnet, which not everybody had access to, but you could tell what the dealers were doing dealer to dealer, which at least would help you understanding who they were trying to, who was popular in that world. But in those days, you had to have as much personal contact as possible. That's how you learned. You had a network too. When you would do the annual guides, you knew who you were going to send books to. And you knew who was going to give you good, honest input when you sent them the books. Yeah. And the beauty of what we were doing is we had not reps, but we were doing it every year. And so we didn't want to wear out the sources, but you'd know you'd weed out the ones that were not. It was wasting their time and our time, too. But the good ones were great. And we tried to compensate them in fair ways. You taught me something interesting. There was something came up. With one of who is now still one of your corporate sponsors. And you told me, Rich, just make in this case, I don't care if it's a bad deal, just make it. Yeah. It was, and it, it worked out very well. He's still one of your corporate sponsors, so it worked out really well. He's done okay. His 40 million cards have done just fine. 
And you, by the way, you need not to go to my synagogue show in Labor Day weekend, but you need, especially since you have family out there, I am telling you, I am giving you permission Anaheim. to go to Anaheim, Anaheim Convention Center. I'm giving you permission to do that. I do not want you to use the fact that I have a synagogue, a 19 The big show that weekend, Rich. I'd rather you go to Anaheim. You have family out there. Diane wants to go out there. We'll see about that. It's the Anaheim Convention Center. Uh, It's the home of the greatest show ever known, the 91 National. Diane's pretty loyal to you as well, Rich. We'll see. I appreciate that, but I am giving you full permission. Okay. Okay. So keep that in mind. Okay. Last question. This is Todd. He says, I still get the Beckett magazine in the mail. I know he's not the only one, but hats off to you, Todd. He says, how about interviewing the guys who founded Upper Deck? And the problem with that is they're not all around still in more ways than one. So who would I need to interview that I haven't already interviewed? Have you ever interviewed Tony Lociano or whatever his name was? Loicano, yeah, yeah. Loicano. Because yeah. he's still around. I talked to him pre-pandemic. He was, yeah. I think he was going to run a show. Like He's yeah. an hour from here, and he's going to run a show. And we were actually in the planning stages of helping him. Yeah. And that needless to say, that's another victim of the pandemic. But yeah. there are some other people. And like the store, I think the people who have the Upper Deck store. Bill Hemrick? Yeah. Bill Hemrick's maybe passed away? I'm not sure. If he is, I would definitely talk to him. Be, I'll tell you somebody else you've not interviewed. He got I, bought out pretty quick. I'll tell you somebody else I would talk to. Not really a founder, but he's the guy who made sure Griffey was card number one. And he's definitely still around. Oh, it's Tom Guideman. Guideman, yeah. <laughs> and Guideman's still a young guy. He's younger than me. I think he's about he's 50. Young. Yeah, he was young at that time. He was a 20-something. Yeah. He's in the he's 50 or early 50s. I would definitely talk to Guideman. That's his claim to fame is the Griffey. And he's done other – he's been in the hobby Sage. a long time. He's the GE of Sage. Yeah. What about Jay McCracken? He's around. I think Jay's still around. Jim Dolgus, I've seen him. Yes. I'll probably see him at some point. Richard McWilliam has passed away. Paul Sumner, the printer, I don't think he was substantively involved. Yeah, no, the printer is just the printer. And Bill Hemrick, they got the name, and he was out after a year or two, I think. Yeah. And Dwayne Bice and Wally Joyner. Uh, Wally Joyner had to get out immediately. <laughs> And Dwayne Bice got like $29 million to get out. But because he took a staggered payment, I think. Yeah. It was great reading Pete Williams's book on Upper Deck. He said, hey, Dwayne Bice just retired to like a farm and just fishes every day now. Well, he took the Bobby Bonilla strategy. Just give me a million dollars a year for the rest of my life. I don't know what his payout was, but this Dwayne guy is one of the most successful baseball players of his rookie crop. Hey, should the hobby, hey, the world has a Bobby Bonilla day. Does the hobby need a Dwayne Bice day? The hobby could, they could do that. The man in the house of cards. The man in the house of cards. The man in the house of cards. Is to-